The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. From John chapter 13 and verse 16, this is our Lord Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, well, buy what we need for the feast, or they should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our teacher this morning. Give him enthusiasm for your word, Father. And this sobering text, give us sober minds and hearts prepared by your Holy Spirit to receive that teaching. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Well, if you're uh, picking a name for a newborn uh, baby boy, you probably, you know, think a first and middle name. You're probably not thinking of something like uh, Benedict Arnold Smith or Judas Iscariot Jones. Not the most popular of, of names uh, in our day because when you hear the name Judas, the immediate association is, is what? Betrayer. Or something along those lines. But in the first century, it was a popular name. 
and the meaning of the name is praised. In our day, we don't think of the name of Judas as praised, but more likely cursed. And we think this because we're, we're familiar with this story. It's not a big surprise to us that Judas is the one. Here Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. Not a big shocker to us. But think about to, to them. They're like, one of them? They don't know. Maybe it was a, a, a shock to the 11 along the lines of Ravi Zacharias to us. And it's hard. This is, a, this is a hard, sad account. And I want to focus on this morning, what I want to focus on this morning is, is the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ, the grace of Christ, and some lessons that we can learn from Judas. So first of all, as surprised as everyone else was, Jesus was not caught off guard. He was not surprised. Sometimes throughout the year, we'll have banners back here that say prophet, priest, and king. The threefold office of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. We have human examples of this. We, we hear of prophets of old um, speaking for God, speaking the oracles of God, speaking um, what God wants to communicate And we know kings, of course, and we are familiar with priests. Jesus, so we have these human examples to where they have one of those roles. Jesus is the ultimate perfection of all three in one. All three of these roles in the one person of Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate priest. Those separated from God, Jesus offers a sacrifice his own body, to redeem us and reconcile us, making us acceptable to God. Jesus is our ultimate king. He fulfills the kingship of David's throne. He rules over all things, over his church, by means of his Holy Spirit. Christ is the eternal king who governs us by his spirit and word. And Jesus, what we see here, is the true and final and ultimate prophet. Hebrews 1 says that God spoke long ago by the prophets and now has spoken to us by his son. Moses spoke of a prophet to come, which finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And what we hear, or what the disciples heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaking audibly from a cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Prophets speak for God. And through prophecy, God is validated, vindicated, or validated, or proven to be God. Only God knows the future. And so this... uh, proves God to be God. All throughout the Bible, God speaks through prophets for telling future events concerning Israel and pagan nations and historic events, and most importantly, through the person of Jesus as he fulfills all of these prophecies concerning 
the Savior to come, the Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and it validates that God is God. Jesus' life is foretold and fulfilled, and Jesus himself is the prophet. He is the ultimate prophet. And in this case, concerning Judas, he knows. He knows. He was not caught off guard. And he prophesies. Earlier in our text, in verse 10, he says to his disciples, You are clean, but not every one of you. He knows. And now in verses 18 through 19, he speaks of the fulfillment of Psalm 41, saying, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, Jesus says, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is saying, there is a betrayer. And I'm telling you now, so that when it happens, you'll see me for who I truly am. You'll, you'll believe in me for who I truly am. Jesus is proving himself to them. One author explains, Jesus knew how much Judas's duplicity would shake the faith of the other 11 disciples. Perhaps they might think that Judas had outwitted Jesus. They needed to be assured that this was the outworking of God's plan and that Jesus was fully aware of what was about to transpire. That is why he tells them before it comes. Psalm 41. Don't you love the, some of the psalms that are, that are prophetic and you realize the, the inspired writer is communicating this, in this psalm his own experience. And yet God is sovereign over all, and he uses those very words that are real to that writer in a prophetic way. And this is what Psalm 41 is. Um, David, his real circumstance. But ultimately, it speaks of Judas betraying Jesus. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In David's life, it was his trusted counselor and friend, Ahithophel, who shared his table. And he ended up betraying David by becoming an advisor to David's son, Absalom, who, Absalom, who betrayed him and waged war against him. And there's an interesting parallel between Ahithophel and Judas in that both of these men ended up hanging themselves. So we should know that Jesus was not surprised. He was not caught off guard because he is the ultimate prophet. He is God who knows the future. But when we think of Jesus in his divinity, we sometimes forget his humanity. Maybe we wrongly conclude his divinity makes him somehow indifferent, that this doesn't affect him. 
But we know this is not the case because verse 21 tells us Jesus was troubled. Troubled in his spirit. As the psalm indicates, this was a, this was a trusted friend. And so the betrayal hurts. How would you feel? Or how, how do you feel? Not when a person simply lets you down or disappoints you by not following through with something, but when a friend, when a loved one, maybe a spouse, when someone intentionally uses their close relationship and ends up deceiving you and hurting you. Many of us don't know this level of hurt, but many of you do know this exact level of hurt, of that kind of betrayal in a cheating spouse, in a co-worker who stabs you in the back with a maybe a close and trusted employee or business partner that steals from you. Maybe it's a rebellious child or an abusive relative where a relationship of trust is is violated. So I bring this fact up that Jesus was troubled, showing that even though he knew, even though he is fully God, he is also fully man. And it's important, this is an important truth for us to know about our Savior because it tells us that he understands us. Because he experienced the same kinds of hurt. He can relate to you. And think about it. Our faith is unlike any other religion in this regard. God is high and holy and other than everything, (laughs) separate, and he became a man, took on flesh, experienced human relationships. He actually, he doesn't just sympathize, he actually empathizes with you. He knows. God knows how you feel. And this should be a great comfort to us. We connect with people who have gone through similar things and it ministers to us and it comforts us that God actually knows. That Jesus lamented, expressing it in this psalm, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas, who was... Think of it, Jesus was so bothered over this, that ointment, right, worth 300 denarii. He was so bothered that that might be wasted. And what did he do? He ends up, he sells Jesus for the going price of a slave. Instead of being, you being enslaved to bitterness, take comfort in the reality that Jesus is with you in your sufferings. He's with you. He understands your pain. There's a kind of fellowship that you have with him. And in that fellowship, follow his example 
as well, by not falling into bitterness. You don't need to be bitter. God understands. He knows. He sees the injustices. He's going to make it all right. We can trust him. God is a a sovereign, loving father. Also, Jesus was gracious. What an example for us to follow. For what would have been our temptation if we were the one being betrayed? We we expect this from Jesus, right? We expect him to be forgiving and merciful. And he tells us to follow his example. And that's hard, isn't it? We're to follow his example. Ultimately, in the end, trusting God to be the judge, we leave it in his hands. But until then, do we actually desire good? Or are we gracious to those who have betrayed us? We see a couple of details in this meal that point to the gracious offer of Jesus, to the one he knew was going to be the betrayer. Remember, unlike Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper, they were not sitting at a high table with chairs. It was more reclining at a low table with mats, and it was U-shaped, Jesus at the head of the table. And the custom was to lean against the person to your left. Right? Left. Um, so we know John, the beloved one. Right? Jesus, he was close to Jesus. John is reclining at Jesus' side. We know that this is so because of verse 23. John was reclining at Jesus' side more literally John was in the bosom of Jesus. So John's on Jesus' right side because he's resting against the chest of Jesus, the person to his left. In other words, well, what we also know is that Judas was probably on the other side of Jesus. Because what did Jesus tell John? John you know, Peter says, hey, John, who's the one? John Jesus, who's the one? The one I'm going to dip this morsel and hand it to. So Judas was in arm's reach. So likely on the other side of him. And this is significant in the sense that Jesus placed Judas near to him. If it were me and I knew who my betrayer was, he'd be in the corner, not even at the table, And I'd be pointing it out to everyone, look at that guy. Just get out of here. You know, what would be our attitude? But he puts him at his side, which in that day, you know, the host seats the guests. To be close to the host is a place of preference, prominence, favor. So Jesus is showing Judas favor, grace. Also, another detail is that when a host took food off of his own plate and handed it to a guest, that was a a sign of great blessing. So Jesus is being so gracious 
to the one he knows is his betrayer, seating him next to him in a place of honor, handing him a piece of food off of his own plate, a sign of blessing and favor. What a gracious Lord we have. And maybe we miss this because Theologically speaking, we know that Jesus sovereignly knows the outcome. He knows what Judas will do. Acts 2.23 says this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God by the hands of lawless men. So these lawless men, Judas being one of them, acts to bring about the crucifixion But ultimately, God is the one who planned. He's the one who foreknew it. Theologically speaking, here's the question. Is there any way Judas is not going to follow through? No. (laughs) It's written. It's foreknown. It's the plan of God. He will follow through with his betrayal. God knows the future. Prophecy is not a good, educated guess by God. God doesn't guess. He writes. He ordains. He knows in that sense. It's certain because of this. Scripture says it's by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, even this definite knowledge of Jesus concerning his betrayer, even this does not keep him from offering Judas his grace. From being merciful instead of exposing him to everyone in bitterness. And what a sad, sad tragedy that Judas, after taking this bread, continues in his deceit. But certainly he also must have known that, you know, think of it. He knew that Jesus knew. He knew that Jesus knew. He spent three years with Jesus. He knows the character of Jesus. He knew that if he turned from this, Jesus would have forgiven him. Jesus would have been kind to him and merciful to him. At some point, if we continue in a charade, there comes a time when it's too late. And that's what it... That's what we're looking at here with Judas. We read that at this point, Satan entered him. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And we can learn a lesson from Judas. We can learn about temptation and a fatal fall. Because this is not the first encounter between Judas and Satan. Earlier in the chapter, we read that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And certainly even before then, as we see Satan's influence in the life of Judas as he used his position over the money to steal from Jesus, the devil doesn't just spring up in this moment. No, he works subtly over a period of time with, with small temptations that lead to greater ones. He's clever. Concerning this, J.C. Ryle comments, Satan, first he suggests, 
Then he commands. First he knocks at the door and asks permission to come in. Then once admitted, he takes complete possession and rules the whole inward man like a tyrant. And in James' letter, we have this wise counsel in avoiding this. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submission and resistance, they go together. Submit to God that he is the authority over your life, and resist the devil. And if we don't, then the opposite's going to happen. We'll eventually find ourselves like Judas, resisting God and resisting his grace and submitting to the devil. Resist the temptations of sin and unbelief and keep resisting by the power of God. And we're told that eventually, James says, eventually the devil will flee. He'll get tired of working on you and he'll move on to someone else. And I don't know about you, I, I, I don't think of Satan a whole lot when it comes to sin. I tend to think, I got enough problem with my own flesh. And that's not wise, because Satan is real. Satan's not omnipresent. I've probably never come into contact with him, but his minions, his demons certainly have come into contact with each of us. He is real. Our strategy is to submit to God, resist the devil. Satan is a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. He is real, and we need to resist him. And even though Satan was working on Judas, Judas is responsible for his betrayal. He's responsible for his sin. In Matthew, we read Jesus saying, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. But notice something else about this encounter. Not only was Jesus not caught off guard, but he was, he was in absolute control. Neither Judas nor Satan tricked Jesus. In fact, what we see after Judas taking this morsel of bread, what we see is that he leaves at the command of Jesus. Jesus says, what you're going to do, go, do it quickly. It's at his command. He's the one who's in absolute control. It looked like Satan triumphed, but he didn't. It it occurred by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. When Satan was afflicting Job, it was by the will of God. God was in charge. He told him his allowable limits when it came to Job. When Satan looks like he's winning, rest assured, he's not. I love this quote from Martin Luther. If it really is from him, who knows nowadays? But Martin Luther said, the devil, the devil is God's devil. 
makes me think of bad Christian fiction from decades ago. Frank Peretti writing This Present Darkness. You know, it's fascinating read. Satan and God going back and forth. Sometimes Satan gets the upper hand. Sometimes God does. That's bad fiction. God is the creator. Everything else is creation. And he is sovereign over it. There's not a battle to where sometimes Satan gets the upper hand. God is in control. Jesus is absolutely in control. It looks like Satan triumphs, but he doesn't. So when you're going through, what does this tell us? When you're going through something difficult, a hard suffering, and it appears like Satan is getting his way, he's not. He really isn't. He may get a, be involved and get a kick out of your pain, and he certainly wants your destruction, but God is never defeated. He is never tricked. He is never caught off guard. We may not, we may not understand what God is doing or why he allows evil to occur or continue. We may not see but we can know. We can know that God is in control and his purposes are good. And isn't, isn't this what faith is? Knowing, knowing, even though we don't really see. Believing in the God who cannot fail, even though we don't see the what and the why or the how of our circumstance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not cross your fingers hope, but a certain hope because it's in God who cannot lie and cannot fail. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not not seen. If the most evil event, think of it, if the most evil event in all of human history was by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and this was done for the greatest possible good that could ever be done, and if this same God makes a promise to those who love him and belong to him, he promises to work all things, every single event and circumstance in your life for your good, don't you think you can trust him? Isn't that a certain hope? After all, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, if he did that, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The cross looks like foolishness and defeat, but God is wiser than the devil and men. Satan's greatest triumph was his ultimate defeat. The worst thing became the best thing. So no matter what you're going through, the Savior who triumphed through the cross will, because he has promised, lead his people through our sufferings to glory. Wow, what a gracious powerful Savior we have. 
And there's so much that we can learn from Christ's example, but I want us to consider a couple of lessons that we might learn from Judas. First, you must be born again. And I say that because Judas looked like a believer, but he wasn't. Salvation is not a matter of appearances. It's not even a good confession or good works. Judas was, he was exposed to the best example as he watched Jesus for three years, sat under his teaching. He heard the best and purest and truest teaching that anyone has ever heard. And still he wasn't a true follower of Christ. We can't manipulate a conversion. Jesus said that unless you are born again, that is, unless the Spirit of God do a supernatural work on your heart, then you cannot see, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Yes, we, we must use words in communicating the gospel, which has the power to save, but it's not our delivery. It's not our sales pitch. It's not working on someone's emotions. If it were, think of it, if it were words alone, if it were words alone and human understanding, then how could Judas possibly resist the teaching and lifestyle evangelism of Jesus? It's not words, not just words. No, if the Spirit doesn't bring about spiritual life, then our words alone cannot save. And I say this with two things in mind. One is, yes, we are told to go and make disciples. We are to share the gospel, not just by being nice, but with actual words, because it's a message. So we must share the gospel. But because it's a supernatural work of God, oh, we need to pray. God, you need to take my imperfect words and open their eyes to the truth. The other thing I have in mind is don't be confused when people abandon the faith. Judas looked like a follower of Christ. Rabbi Zacharias sounded like a Christian. Many people were converted through his ministry and blessed and grew in their faith because of his ministry. But sadly, as far as we know, he died an unrepentant sexual predator, denying and lying about his victims until the end. Joshua Harris was a major, had a huge impact as a Christian author. And then became a pastor. And can you imagine the hurt of the members of his church knowing that their own pastor is no longer even a Christian, let alone left the church? Dr. Paul Maxwell, who wrote for Desiring God, I'm sure encouraged a lot of believers, who taught at Moody Bible Institute, had a doctorate in theology and was big into philosophy as well, uh, recently within the last few weeks said, I'm no longer a Christian. 
Derek Webb, one of my favorite Christian musicians, uh, one of the rare ones, you know, when I go to a Christian concert or any concert, I typically just want them to play their music and not talk. But with him, I actually liked what he had. He actually was a good teacher as well and had good things to say. And now he's deconstructed his faith. Earlier this week, I was reminded of a couple of guys that many of you probably know. Once with a good reputation in our valley as upstanding Christian men, and now they're drug-addicted sex offenders who have abandoned the faith. I, how does that happen? How do you, you know this person? And then over time, over years, you see a picture of them and it's like, doesn't even look like the same person. How do they, how does that happen? You must be born again. And if you are born again, Jesus promises to receive you and keep you to the very end. So don't be confused like the 11 must have been about Judas. If we do not endure to the end, then we will not be saved. And when any walk away from the faith, John tells us in his first epistle, the reality that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been truly Christians, if they had been of us, they would have continued. But they went out that it might become plain that they are they all are not of us. If anyone leaves, all it does is show they never really were born again. They never really were Christians. They sounded like it. They looked like it. They may even bless people with what they have to say. But salvation is much more than words. It's a transformation of the heart. Jesus says something similar, doesn't he? to the self-deceived person who says, Lord, Lord, we did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Judas probably would say the same thing. And Jesus declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not, I knew you, but you're, you're a Judas. Now I don't know you. No, I never knew you. Jesus, yeah, he, he knew, he was aware of Judas, but not in a saving sense. Not really. Not in the way in which John is writing this gospel. Not as one of his own sheep. Judas knew Jesus, but not really. Not like John wants us to know. His purpose in writing this gospel is that we might know Jesus, that we might believe in him. And we see all throughout this gospel people who know Jesus and believe certain things about him, and they're not converted. They're not, they don't really believe. It's not an intellectual knowing. It's faith, which is a gift of God, which comes by a sovereign work of the Spirit causing us to be born again. As confusing as it must have been for the 11 disciples, Judas 
proved that he never was a true follower of Christ. Scripture is clear that the ultimate proof is that true believers will continue in the faith to the very end. Secondly, we learn from Judas the great danger of toying with sin. Again, Satan just didn't pop up in the moment. His betrayal wasn't the start of his relationship with Satan. It was the result. One author wrote, Trifling with the first thoughts of sin, making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and flatter us and put bad notions into our hearts and minds. All of this may seem a small matter to many. It is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Happy is he who really believes that there is a devil and believing watches and prays daily that he may be kept from his temptation. And I think of these once friends and think, this is it. This is how you get from there to there. Lastly, we learn from Judas to respond to Jesus while his offer of grace remains. There was a point when Jesus said, go, do what you must do, what you're going to do. But until he said that, he offered grace. As Judas planned the death of Jesus in reality, putting Jesus off, he was planning his own death. And those who hear the gospel and put it off, maybe another day, maybe later, are actively planning their own condemnation. The opportunity may come and then go. And Jesus may eventually give you over to your free will saying, go do what you want to do, which is a curse. Have you, you know, I, I, I hear these sad, scary statistics, and you've heard them too, of kids growing up in the church and becoming teens and then going off to college or whatever, and abandoning the faith. And the percentages are, what, 80% in some traditions? It's high. It's scary. And so when I give a message like this, I look out and it's like, I don't, I assume you're all Christians. I assume the best in you, but I don't know. You don't know. Have you just been coming to church because that's what your family does? Have you just been tasting these morsels of grace that Jesus offers without turning from your sin and seeking his forgiveness? Is Christianity just a, a tradition 
for you and not a giving of your heart. And if you'd just been talking the talk or following along and you know that there's something missing, that Jesus stretches out his hand and he offers you his grace. Don't let Satan keep you from receiving the gracious gift of Jesus because the last words of our text are ominous. They are tragic. Judas took the morsel and went out, and the last sentence says, and it was night. And this isn't just stating the obvious that Judas left in the night. No more profoundly, it describes his final spiritual state. Judas walked away into the dark. Jesus is the light of men. Jesus is the true light. Judas refused the light and he chose the darkness where no light will ever shine again. So if you hear the gospel of Jesus, you're not in that eternal darkness. Jesus offers his grace saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow him. Come to Jesus. Accept his offer of grace. And those who do believe, let's follow him. Let's submit to God and resist the devil. Let's not play with sin. Let's truly and continually follow after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you you know each person's heart. We pray, Lord, for our various loved ones who we know do not know you. And we ask that you would cause your spirit to do a regenerative work on their hearts. Your word declares that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we pray, Lord, for our neighbors and friends and relatives who are blinded by Satan. We pray that you would speak, that you would command light to shine into their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, please use our words to bring this saving light into their lives. Give us a a desire to be better witnesses and share the gospel and look for opportunities and be creative in our hospitality to not be so divided in such a polarized time as this over things that are important but eternally are meaningless. Please overcome and heal this spiritual blindness. Please keep them from continuing on into the dark. 
And Lord, do a work in our lives. Cause us to be bold witnesses of Jesus. Help us to submit to you, Father, to do your will, to resist our enemy and his desire to devour us. Lord, may we not play around with sin and temptation. Open our eyes to its lie and the destruction it brings and give us hearts to continually follow after you to the end of our days. Draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.